Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content marketing in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thanks for giving us just a little bit of your time this week to spend with us as we speak to someone who is really going to give you some insights that are going to be of real value to your work. But as we do each week, we start with a definition of just exactly what content marketing is as it relates to government and the public sector, because it is important that we do understand just what it is in these very early stages of content marketing. So content marketing is a strategic, measurable and repeatable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So to our guest today, our guest today is Bob Pearson, who is the president of the WTO Group, a group of three marketing and communications companies. Prior to working at WTO, Bob was the vice president of communities and conversation for Dell, where he developed their first global social media efforts. And before that, he was head of global corporate communications for Novartis Pharmaceuticals. Bob recently wrote the book, Storytizing, What's Next After Advertising? And he's also written a book, a book called Pre-Commerce, which examines similar sorts of topics. Bob is also a frequent speaker on digital marketing at the Syracuse Center for Social Commerce. And importantly for this audience, he also speaks at the US State Department's Marketing College. Bob Pearson, thanks very much for joining us in Transition. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, so, Bob, listen, storytizing, I'm intrigued by it because it really is about what's next after advertising. But is it the time yet to, to read the last rights to traditional advertising? <laughs> That's an interesting way to say it, yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's an evolution that's in progress. And if you think of the uh, traditional peso model, of paid, earned, shared, and owned. You know, we all knew that we grew up in a world where advertising was number one. We then revolved around that to figure out how our campaign could be done. The big change is occurring now because of technology and the use of analytics is we can see exactly who our audience is proactively. We can actually identify who we want to reach, and then we can align with them in many different ways. And so because we can do that, Earned and shared media are becoming far more important than ever. Owned media can actually be introduced via earned and shared media more effectively. And paid media can be used more strategically. So advertising definitely doesn't go away. It's always going to be important. But it will be used much more strategically and much more as a way to take uh, earned and shared content and help it actually extend its life and reach the right people. So what are the skills that communications teams, particularly in that government and public sector area, are going to have to have to make the most of this, uh, this transition that's taking place? Yes. So when we talk, uh, for example, at the US State Department, you know, we focus on the fundamentals, uh, most of all, which is, do you actually know who your audience is? Do you know the behavior you want to occur? Do you know the content that you um, really should deliver and why? Do you know how you will distribute it? 
you know, that type of thing. Um, but I, I get down into basics like uh, the world, despite looking like it's so big and there's so much data all over, there's actually very few people, for, for example, who really drive share of conversation. So do we know the top 50 people who are driving the majority of share of conversation? Do we know the top keywords that are actually aligning what we talk about with the story we want people to reach? So it's things like that, that we, where we have to like stop for a second, make sure we don't make the world too complex and say, what are those smaller actions that are highly focused that we can take that will allow us to get our story out to the right people? So what you're encouraging people to do is really to be strategic about their communication before they start doing things. Yeah, exactly. So if you think of like, take, take Twitter as an example. Uh, you know, if you look at Twitter, you know, people for years have always been wanting to uh, just expand how many people follow them on Twitter. What, we, what I say is, who cares? What, what really matters is, who are the people that actually um, will move your content? And think about Twitter as like, like it's Reuters. Can, can you follow the right people so when you say something that's relevant, you know, you're gonna improve your, your, uh, your reach 20, 30, 40%. And, and so that is not a uh, quantity game at all. That's a, that's a quality game. And how do you go about trying to find the right people? and try to understand who those right people are. Yeah, so uh, today, you know, the, the most sophisticated way is to use algorithms where we can see exactly um, who, who actually drives conversation or who shares the most, and you can see that in order. Um, mainly because you can, you can identify human behavior and then build algorithms around that human behavior. But if you have none of those tools and you have zero money for your budget, uh, you can still, you know, look at who is actually most important to you. Most most organizations, and you know, we we get into this with the the government. Uh, if you have no budget, at least look at who actually is moving your content and telling your story well, and then look at who follows them, and see if you can f see some superstars in there that really like what you're talking about, and then follow them, and keep doing that, and see let let your your audience actually take you to the next audience. And, and you can, anyone can do that. Um, if you have the money, you can, you, you can, you know, get very sophisticated, but many people don't have that. So that's where we would often start. Okay. You, in um, storytizing, you raise this uh, notion or this, this idea of audience architecture. Can you explain yeah. that to me a little bit more? Yes. The, the way that we got into this is actually kind of a neat story. Um, a couple of years ago, we were sitting around and, and kind of complaining to ourselves how Google really will never be efficient enough and that we really need what we call custom search. In other words, whatever audience you care about, you should be able to search just that audience and know what they're doing. But that didn't exist. And so what we did is we started um, looking at healthcare as an example, and we built something called M Digital Life, where we index all medical providers and then we match them up with their registration number and then their online profile. So then you can start to see what are all cardiologists saying or what are all oncologists saying or what are nurses saying and how do they interrelate with each other. And that became the foundation for what we call audience architecture. But it's basically, you know, if you're in the movie business, it's, you know, and you're, you're putting out another Harry Potter movie. Well, who are the people who um, like all the past Harry Potter movies? Where are they? What are they doing? What time of day do they go online? And by tracking the right tribes of people, 
you can actually see exactly what it is that they want so you can align with them. So that's the essence of audience architecture is to understand who your audience is, proactively identify who they are, whether it's B2B or B2C, and then understand what they want in terms of content, video, images, time of day, all that stuff. So how much time does it take to do this effectively? Now, I know obviously that's, you know, how long is a piece of string, but (laughs) how much time can get you a, a, a good result? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the reasons I write books like this is we're looking at what people are doing today, but what we think the majority of the world will do, say, three to four years from now. And so right now, it's not mainstream that people um, identify the audience, but it's it's completely doable to do that. So what we're, at the very least, if you take a B2B audience, um, great example is in technology. People will say, I don't know how to reach the B2B professionals in technology. How do I reach the people who are security experts uh, related to the cloud? Well, the reality is, you know, you, you just start dissecting who those folks are. What, what software languages do they care about? What security issues do they care about? And if you kind of go from left to right and you figure out all the topics that they care about, you have a basket of topics that can then lead you to the right people. If you put an algorithm against that, of course, you can get you know very precise. But again, even without an algorithm, you start to break down how few people you really need to reach in each area to make a difference. And that's a theme we see over and over again worldwide is that there's um, very few people that really make a difference. Right. So it really is this narrowing. So this notion of broad or big doesn't really matter. It's just the ones who are essential to your business, who not only will share your content perhaps, but will also behave in the way that you want them to behave to achieve the, the business objective that you've outlined. Exactly. And, and you mentioned, you know, government business but, uh, earlier. So it's, that, that's absolutely true what you said. And then the other thing is if you have a issue that's, um, let's say you have a nemesis that is coming at you even harder than you are, well, actually start to look at how do you reach people who are influential outside of the zone where everyone's talking. So let's I'll give you an example of this without giving, you know, there's nothing to do with uh, specific work so I don't get in trouble. But let's just say that, um, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Putin was making a lot of noise about something and uh, it was about the Ukraine. Well, a lot of that conversation occurs between Russia and Ukraine and uh, people kind of crowd each other out with the noise. If you actually look for people who are advocates of, um, in this case, the Ukrainians worldwide, you can start to see who has influence by topics and countries that are unrelated to where the noise is occurring. And you can start to crowdsource uh, positive content back into the market more effectively um, by doing that. But people don't usually think like that. They usually think about like, like hand-to-hand combat. Mm. If someone's coming after me, how do I come after them? I always think of judo. Like, you know, yeah, why right. don't you use someone else's power and actually turn it against them? So do you, do, are these skills data science skills that you're going to have to have as part of your team as, as you start to take advantage of this ability to, you know, create and distribute content? Yeah, great question. I, 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 I'm a big believer that the original fundamentals that we learned as communicators or marketers are just as important as they've ever been. So... Um, you have to have the fundamentals. 
but you, you do need to have a, a knowledge of data science so you understand how, how to think in a way. You may be instructing data scientists to give you what you need, but you understand how to, how to do that. So um, yeah, I think that does help. And you know, an example of this would be, you know, like with content, what we see is um, from doing this many times, you know, we've done uh, this type of work like thousands of times, and you see when, when you look in a marketplace, the content that a, a given organization may be putting out, it may be 60 to 70% of what the market actually wants, but that other 30 to 40% is, is not on at all. So if you actually are looking at the market correctly, you can see what content your audience actually wants, and you can get closer to 100% of what they're looking for. Well, that, that makes a big difference in content. So a great uh, creative or a great communicator talking to a data scientist can help have them figure out what you need, and then you do the campaigns that are gonna make content marketing super successful. Yeah. So that's why I think, I think it helps us all become better professionals. Yeah, indeed. Well, the power of it is incredible compared to where we were not so long oh, ago. Totally. So how fast yeah. do you think this change is taking place and how quickly do people need to be starting to think about retooling their approaches to take advantage of this gift of technology? I, I believe it's something that everyone should be thinking about how they do it now uh, because, you know, when you have technology allowing you to do this today, you really have to think twice and say, why would I prevent myself from knowing who, who the customers are who drive share of conversation? Why would I not want to know what language to use to get people to reach my story that I spent so much time figuring out how to do well? Why would I not know, want to know exactly which channels my customers are in to reach them more effectively? You know, so when you, when you start to think of what's possible, you realize, okay, this is, you can't do everything in one day, but it's a multi-year effort to say we're going to change. And we see the best organizations, um, they just do that. They just say, okay, got it, let's go. And that's, you know, part of, that's part of the essence of the marketing college with the State Department is, uh, you know, a while back, Ed Tazia and Kip Knight put this together and then asked a, a bunch of us to, to join them as, um, you know, quote-unquote professors to really start teaching the fundamentals of, of marketing and communications and then how it applies in the digital world. And, you know, we, we teach this to uh, embassy spokespeople and consulate spokespeople and members of uh, many other functions within the state uh, worldwide. Yeah. But in sort of government, and again, this perhaps I'd be interested in your experience or observations of government and public sector, but they're notoriously conservative um, yeah. organisations. So how... Yes. What could be a couple of steps, perhaps, that people could start? Where, where are the easy places to, to, get, to get going? Yes. So I look at the uh, government uh, really just like a regulated industry. So if we work with um, a pharmaceutical company or a bank, um, you know, they have a lot of regulatory laws that they have to follow. And so it, it slows them down and you have to think about how to innovate differently. A government is the same way. It may not be that there's the regulations, although that's some of it. It's also just the inertia that is slower inside a, a government to move things. So what does that mean? That means that you do things like, what if you build a library of content in advance that you can get approved so we can, when you can see the marketplace evolving, you have more content that's already approved 
that you can put in the market more quickly that is aligned with what people are doing? Or what are all the things you can do that are really zero risk that anyone can be doing? So in other words, when I, when I think of like the Twitter example, I think of it like a, what's your, if you're building a media network and the government uh, body or, or a company is thinking like a media property, you say, okay, am I following the right people in each, each channel, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera? And then if I am, am I providing them the right content in order to tell our story together? You know, anyone can do that. Regulations have nothing to do with that. So I, I always look at like, what are all the things you can do with zero risk? What are the things you can do with very low risk? And the things that are longer term, okay, we'll get to those next year. Mm, okay. Well, that, that's, that, that's really good advice, I think, that, you know, to just pick up those tasks that are, no one can object to because it's not going to be right. a problem. But then how do you sell the message up the line? How do you then mm. get that message up to those senior executives and, and through that senior executive layer up to the political layer where they can understand and appreciate the benefits that this can uh, develop or deliver to their particular program or service or, or regulation or regulatory organisation? Yeah. Again, a, a great, great point. And it's um, w- without saying anything that I get, you know, I have to be careful, I guess, in any specific details. But I don't think governments are any different than companies in this regard in that if you can train and uh, teach the top leaders of an organization, you make a difference. If you don't, then you don't. So one of the things that we are consistently say in any kind of training is if you're training the people who are on the front lines and they can get better at what they do, that's great. And that definitely helps. But you have to, the bosses have to be trained too. The bosses just can't say, I'm on board, let's do this. That really, I, I don't find that that really works. And so we're always pushing to um, get higher level involvement, higher level knowledge, uh, broaden out the reach. And uh, and the government moves slower that way where companies will say, you're right, let's go train 500 people worldwide and let's go make this happen. Yeah. But, and and look, I I think that the slow movement of government, you know, there's a purpose to it really. You know, you you, you don't need, you don't want it to operate like a a private sector organisation. Absolutely. Absolutely. But in terms of getting the attention of those people again, I get that, but they're notoriously busy. You know, we've got so many mm-hmm. things to do. We, you know, I've got so many people wanting to get a share of my time. So many want to, to get my attention. What's some advice that you would have to people in terms of composing an argument um, to to them or a, conv- a a convincing argument that would get them to think, okay, that is worth. I don't know, an hour, two hours, yeah. three hours of my time. And what, what is the best time of the day um, to coach senior executives? Yes. Well, uh, a couple of things in there. One is when people uh, are not seeing why they should do something from a digital standpoint, one of the more effective uh, approaches is to actually do a uh, landscape analysis that shows who is telling the story for the topics that the executive or leader cares about. And what I find is when you can say, you know, here's who's telling the story, here's who's influencing the reputation of what you care about, uh, who's defining the issues that you care about, what they often then realize is they don't know any of these folks or they know very few of them. 
And so the real, then the follow-up is if you're comfortable allowing other people to form your reputation without you, there's, that's great. Nothing to talk about, <laughs> right? But if you would prefer to be involved in, you know, shaping your own brand or your own reputation, you know, we need to do something. And that's usually enough for any leader to do exactly what you just did. They kind of go like, it's a laughing moment to say, okay, this is silly. We got to do something about that. The other thing I find is nothing better than getting executives involved in, in uh, of any type. And so an example would be, let's say you're trying to do outreach in a certain country for a certain topic. Well, why not, you know, do a, a guest blog series over time, nothing extraordinary, but have that uh, leader reach out to people they know to do uh, Q and A's or to do, uh, you know, ask three questions and get three answers or uh, feature one of their friends on their blog. And you start to bring the community that you're trying to reach into your community. And by kind of bear hugging that community, you act, they, they, of course, usually love that and then tell her, all their friends. So you start to um, uh, integrate your your reach or, or, or expand your reach more. But it also gets more personal. And like anything in life, when things get more personal, we pay more attention. So what you're suggesting, though, is okay, is is to really assist those executives to to grow their own reach and influence by demonstrating their expertise and sharing yep. the information and knowledge that they've acquired over many many years. Yes, exactly, exactly. And what happens naturally with leaders is they will then start to look at this more closely, and they have their own. You know, if they're not as digitally savvy, they may have a very um, unique view of what they think the world thinks of them. And then you can see like, well, this is actually what the world is really believes in what you have done. And they realize, okay, this is not only important for the brand or reputation work that I'm, uh, I, I'm responsible for. I have a role in this. I have to have a bigger voice in order to move that needle. And when that happens, you know, then you have uh, great future, great leadership, but it doesn't always happen. So, you know, it's, um, you know, big organizations of any type, not everyone's going to do that, but you get enough people doing it, others pay attention. And how do you find those who are perhaps a little bit more predisposed to to learning and to getting involved? Any tips around how you can identify where to start? Yeah. So this is where I'm going to go back to my, my Dell days, you know, as an example. Um, I, I we, we had a lot of, you know, our leaders were great, very smart and busy, just as you said before, you know. But what I found is if I went into the middle of the organization and asked people if they would participate, they were hungry and they wanted to and they would commit the time. Well, once they started to do that and participating online and people were liking what they were doing, uh, the leaders above them wake up to go, hey, what about me? How come you didn't ask me? You know, and it's like, oh, I didn't know you were interested. Why don't we uh, why don't you join us? So I, I, I found that a, a little good old fashioned um, craftiness can can wake people up and get them going. You know, so it, it works, you know, and I, why not? So away from training and it, and and back to this notion of of the use of tools, what what suggestions might you have for the audience about the the tools that they should assemble and the tools that they should be using to try to gather these insights into the audience around the content and the distribution that they're going to need to engage themselves in? Yes. Well, one of the things I I try to do in storytelling and also in pre-commerce is 
focus on what I call intellectually scalable models. So what I would encourage people to do is, you know, if you're head of communications is, uh, as an example, is to really think through what it is that you need to be looking at. So a great example would be a dashboard that people look at. And I always joke around like, you know, uh, most dashboards show you a lot of stuff and you have no idea what it means. You know, I mean, yes, you can read about your organization and you can see it, but you don't know what to do about it. There's no actionable intelligence that you're getting. So stop looking at that stuff and, and start to think, what do I actually need to follow so I can be smarter? So I'll give you an example of this. It could only be that there's three channels that you need to be looking at for a topic. Well, follow those. Or you could say, I'm going to identify the top uh, 50 people that matter for me on a topic. And I want to look at what they're doing every day because they're actually driving the market. So I want to look at them versus all the other noise. Um, so, you know, you could do that th this day and age, as you know, with uh, Sysimus or, or Hootsuite or Sprinkler or many tools where if you can just tweak it enough, you can actually just get what you need and cut out all the noise. But the key thing is, you know, try to focus on what it is that you really are going to learn from. And in a general sense, what do you think are the things that people should be looking at to give them that best understanding of the distribution and of the other data that's helping them to, to uncover those insights around the content that's, um, yeah. that, that needs to be created? So when we, when we talk about that, there's um, you know, five fundamentals of media efficiency uh, that I always go back to that we found um, is continuing to work over the last 10 years and uh, worldwide. And, you know, w one of them is what we just talked about, which is make sure you have actionable insights that you can act on when you need to and uh, stop nothing short of getting there. The second is uh, the talent. You're in the talent business. Know who is actually telling your story and know who is influencing those people and ask yourself if you're actually forming the right relationships with them. And also, are you building out the next generation of talent? So a great communications uh, person is thinking through who are the next 10, 20, 30 people who really are on board with what we're doing, but they're not famous enough yet, but we're going to help them get there because we're going to basically completely shape our ecosystem. So that's the second. The third is language. What are the actual keywords? And there's usually not more than 15 that drive um, that you can use that will align people with your story. Uh, you know, the, the, the fourth there is content, which I talked about, making sure you know what content really matters. And then the fifth is channel. Uh, if we look at social media, there's only 10 channels of social media. So everything fits into one of the 10. And basically, people usually heard and are not um, active in more than about four for any topic for what you care about. So don't worry about going everywhere. Just worry about going to the channels where people hang out. So I find that those five things end up centering you on doing the right thing and not getting distracted by, you know, the latest squirrel that uh, flew by. <laughs> and in terms, hmm. what, what are your views about offline communications, things like events and, say, traditional public relations, working with media organizations, yeah. still, still important to you? Very important, but in a different way. So I think what we always knew about uh, events was they're, they could be great, they're exciting, they get people's attention, and that attention goes away as fast as it comes. 
And so what we can now see with uh, uh, analytics is that that's absolutely true, is um, whether it's an advertising campaign launch or a big event or a press conference or, you know, they usually have like that one big day where everyone's paying attention. It might be a little longer than that, but usually not a lot. But here's the thing that's really cool. What we've, when we see is when you catch people's attention, they're wide awake, your audience is awake. If you give them relevant content that's not newsworthy, you can extend that conversation for weeks and even months. And we're seeing this over and over again, that if you, if you know who your um, top 1% are who create content, but more importantly, your top 9% in the 1990 model, the people who will share content if you give it to them because they love what you do, if you give them a video, Q&As, a, a slide deck, a, a, a tweet, a white paper, and it's on the same topic, they will keep talking and sharing and talking and sharing. So there's a content elasticity that we are still learning about, which is critical to expanding the power of communications. And uh, we, in the future, we'll know, okay, this topic like, will go for a week, this topic will go for three weeks, this topic is endless. Uh, this topic no one cares about. And so you can start to see then how to how to tweak your campaigns. And that, that leads to what we call agile campaigning, which is um, how do you wake up a market, but then keep feeding it appropriately forever after. Okay, that's, that's a great insight. And what about PR, media? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely important. I think you have, a broader, have to have a broader view of media. Uh, what we see... Again, through um, doing this quite a bit, is that if you have a, a financial topic, you know, you have, um, uh, or a government topic where it's like a consistent topic that people are going to talk about, yeah, you may have more journalists covering you, and it may be, um, you know, a consistent group that is clearly listening to what you say. But for, for the majority of topics, uh, it, that's not the case. And you have a mix of, of just normal people, bloggers, journalists, uh, you know, depending on the topic, it's other industry experts. And so understanding that mix is really important. But more importantly, what we're seeing in media relations, which is really key for PR, is we can see who influences who. So in other words, who influences a journalist? Well, if you ask them, you know the answer, they'll say no one. But if you actually, right? Because there's not possible that anyone could influence them. But when you actually look online, you see is that there's, of course, a lot of people influencing them. So you can see that it might be a subject matter expert here. It could be a physician. Yeah. It could be a NSA expert, you know, and, and then you start to see who you need to work with to influence. So media relations is actually expanding in, in its breadth in terms of how we do it well. But a lot of companies and organizations, as you still know, and government as well, they still go out to the traditional journalists and try to get them to write traditional stories. And then they high five because they think they did their job. And that's really just the very beginning of the process. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And just one final one before we go, because we're, we're hard up against time. Just could you give me some examples, just going back to that point one, that, you know, these five fundamentals, this actionable yep. insights, just... If you could just give me an example, perhaps, of what um, a, a handful of actionable insights might look like. Yes. So let me give you some. Uh, uh, we do. A, we've done a lot of work in the movie industry over the years, and and so um, I, I won't say the um, the movie, but um, 
uh, one one of the well, I'll just tell you what it is. So it's uh, yeah. <laughs> we're in we Australia. At, we're a long way away, so don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but it's like when you look at like Harry Potter, for example. Okay. You know, you know, and you look at you know how many people love Harry Potter, and there's there's only um, in, in one of their key countries for Harry Potter, there's only 43 people that drive the majority of share of conversation. Yet there's millions of people talking about it. So if you if you go out to the um, influencers and allow them to carry content sooner, then you actually have more impact on the audience than if you go out with traditional direct mail or uh, emails or things like that. Now, why is that? The reason is it's far more relevant when an audience gets to inform itself than if an organization informs for it. And so when you look at like, um, you know, rates of uh, interest, they're not like one time better. They're like 10, 20, 30 times better. It's not even close. And so that that kind of thing we see all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an example. Yeah, no, fantastic. Well, listen, Bob, thank you so much for, for sharing those great examples and your wisdom uh, that is in storytizing and before that in, in pre-commerce. I think that a lot of people will be now going out and buying both of those books, I think, because the the insights there will really help them to to start this transition, really, to, to get themselves moving and to start to take some of those actions that you've mentioned so they can improve the the efficiency and the effectiveness of, of their communication. But listen, um, for the audience, what's the best way for them to be able to stay connected to a lot of the work that you've outlined for us today? Yeah, the, the best way is uh, my, my Twitter handle is at Bob Pearson 1845. That happens to be the year that uh, Texas joined the United States, just as an aside. <laughs> uh, and then uh, also you can just go to our, our site, w2ogroup.com, and we have a blog there called Common Sense. And we have a lot of uh, great interviews on there and everything else. But I also want to compliment you. I think what you're doing is great. Um, I love the fact that you know podcasting is really becoming as strong as ever, and it's um, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, Bob, no problem at all, and thanks very much for that. And we enjoy it. Like I love having these conversations. I've I've got pages of notes sitting in front of me now. I was just scribbling things down as we spoke. Um, I've been in this business for a long, long time, but whenever you speak to people like we do on this podcast, you always learn. There are always things that you've never thought of before. So thanks very much for being so generous with your time and uh, good luck with uh, WTO and, and everything else that's going on. Great. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you very much for your time again this week. That was a very, very useful interview. And I'm sure that you will take so much away from that. As I said, like so much in that for me, just incredible amounts of insight. So have another – I reckon that's worth a couple of listens if I were you. I think I'd go back as I will and go and have another good listen to what Bob's got to say. I'll certainly be going to WTO a, a little bit more, looking at Common Sense, following Bob and um, getting through a little bit more of the storytizing book. I've got a little way through it, but I've got a bit more to go. And I'll actually, I haven't got pre-commerce, so I'll go back and buy that. But anyway, there you go. So listen, thanks, everyone. Thanks for being uh, with me again this week. Look forward to a bit more of your time next week. So just for the moment, bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.